good afternoon, uh, and welcome to the official start of mosquito season in Manitoba. Anybody, anybody gotten bit yet? I got so many. So yesterday, I don't know what happened. I walk outside and just immediately, I'm like engulfed with mosquitoes. So you know, we either have your your freezing, your your freezing and might die, or, or you get eaten alive by mosquitoes. Uh, and then we have that that great month uh, after the fish flies. Uh, that one is a it's a great month I'm looking forward to. Uh, anyway, it's crazy out there. If I haven't gotten to meet you yet, my name is Aaron. Uh, I'm one of our pastors and preachers here at the Trails, and it's so good to be gathering with you and opening up God's Word and sunning it a little bit together. Uh, if this is one of your first times with us, we want to say welcome to you. We're glad that you're here joining us. Uh, as a church, we have been studying the book of Exodus uh, for the last couple of months. It is the second book of the Bible. So if you're newer to the Bible, you can just open to the second book, and that's where we are, the book of Exodus. Uh, and today we are in chapter number or big, bold number 24. But before we walk into that text, I want to remind us right here at the top end of our sermon, probably the first third of our sermon, uh, of what we have seen so far in the book of Exodus. So if you open up to Exodus 24, I'm going to get there. I promise you, I'm going to get there. Uh, but, but I wanted you to know that way, if you're, if you're brand new, you're like, man, I've never read the Bible. I do not know the book of Exodus. I do not know what you're even talking about. I want to give you some, some helpful pointers on what's going on in the book and where we're at in it and what's going on. Or if you've been around, but you've slept a number of times, uh, and you're like, man, I don't, I don't remember that. Uh, I want to give you kind of some, some overall storyline of what is happening. And so the book of Exodus what have we seen so far? What have we seen so far? Well, it is the book of the Bible where we read about the historic narrative, the true-to-life history explanation of how Israel has been rescued or redeemed as slaves in Egypt, and they've come out of Egypt. They had an exodus. <laughs> That's where the book gets its name. Uh, they, they, they're coming out of uh, Egypt. Now, and, and the surprising thing is that we've been reading through this book is that their liberation from slavery, from slavery doesn't happen through military might. Uh, it doesn't come by human will or, ex, uh, or uh, exertion. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie, Exodus, Gods and Kings. That's kind of what it was. It's like they all go to battle and it's like, you know, this big scene and all these things. This is, that is not how this happened at all, uh, actually. Uh, in fact, what we read in the Bible is that Israel is rescued from Egypt purely by the work of God by his strong arm, they don't even lift a finger to help liberate themselves at all. Thus, the overarching story of the book of Exodus is that Israel, God's chosen people, find themselves in slavery in Egypt, unable to save themselves until God himself comes to their rescue and liberates them while simultaneously bringing judgments down onto the nation of Egypt. I mean, punishment after punishment for their unjust treatment of Israel and because of their refusal to let Israel go. And so as we have seen in the book of Exodus, God flexes and demonstrates his power as he decimates Egypt, simultaneously demonstrating that the gods of Egypt, all the gods that the people in Egypt worshipped, all the places where the Egyptians put their trust as a people, were really false gods, weak and impotent demons who are unable to do anything that they promised. Thus, this whole narrative, as we have seen, demonstrates that there is only one true and living God. It's Yahweh. And that these slaves, Israel, are his chosen people. And there is no one like him. And so God miraculously rescues them and frees them while bringing judgment on Egypt. But not so that Israel could simply have freedom for freedom's sake, 
but rather they are set free that they might serve him and worship him, living under his laws for his glory as his people. Because that's where true freedom, the Bible says, is found for us as humans. True freedom is that we were created to live for the glory of God. And as we follow his rules for human flourishing and glorify him, we have real and true and lasting freedom. So that's why we were created, for his glory. And so throughout this book, we've seen God bring justice on sinful Egypt, which, which is a really good thing, especially comforting in days like this. Like, think of the things that have gone through your social media timeline this week. Intense injustices where no justice is able to come to them. And God says there's coming a day where every injustice will be made right. Where there will be judgment. People in this, in this world might not undergo judgment, but there is a world yet to come. And God promises there is judgment there which is good news for us, especially when we walk through various injustices. We, we look at the lives of those who have died, and we wonder, is there any justice for this? And the Lord says, yes, there is. And so we've seen him bring justice onto, onto this broken world for their many sins, and we've seen also how he saves his people. So you've seen both God's judgment on the wicked, but also how God has provided for Israel every step of the way. He's given them golden clothing as they plundered Egypt. Can you imagine plundering the people who once were your slave owners? And you just like take all their stuff. That's great. Uh, and then he's done that as they're going towards the, the promised land. They, God even gives them daily food and water. We also read how he gave them military victory. Remember Moses' hands are like held up. And as Moses' hands are held up, there's victory that happens. And God has provided for his people every step of the way as they're on their way to the promised land, this land that God promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which we'll get to in the book of Joshua. So right now we're in so Genesis, Exodus, there's Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua. That's when they actually go into the land, so we're not there yet. But there's these promises that they're, they're going to be in the land. But before they get there, God has this pit stop planned that lasts all the way from Exodus 19 all the way uh, through the book of uh, Leviticus until Numbers chapter 10. So it's a long time. So the better part of a year, Israel is at this mountain called Sinai. And it's there where God gives them laws and statutes as this newly constituted and liberated people, as this new nation, including all the requirements for how they are going to build a tabernacle, this tent where Israel would come and worship God. So the first half of the book is all about God's liberation and provision for his people. And then the second half, the one that we're in right now, is how God's people might become who they are as this newly constituted nation, helping teach them how to live as God's people under God's kingship, worshiping God and living their lives for his glory as he dwells with them. That's where we're at right now. That's why it's, be called, it's called becoming who we are. It's Israel's learning how to become who they are by extension. Oh, we are as well as God's people. And so the section that we've been studying most recently started back in chapter 19. So Israel arrives at that pit stop, Mount Sinai, where they spend the better part of a year receiving all the rules and laws of this new kingdom, how God expects for them to be as a people. And then this section begins with God calling Moses up onto the mountain and formalizing this relationship with Israel in, an, in a covenant, in an agreement. As we talked about before, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. 
That's what it is at the most basic level, right? So we have human covenants, like marriage covenants or partnerships in business kind of covenants where we write contracts. They're these oath-bound relationships where two or more parties come together, they make oaths, they draw up contracts, right? It's like, you pay me this and I will build you that. Pay me this, I'll paint you that. Uh, you pay me this and I'll show up Monday to Friday from nine to five. But if you change my contract, we got to renegotiate. You know what I mean? So, so we have that kind of on the earthy level. And then, and then what happens? Everybody signs those, right? That way, if, if your boss doesn't live up to their end of the bargain, which I know that's never happened to you, or if a client ever says, no, I'm not paying you that, and you say, yes, you are, you signed this contract, that's never happened to you either, I'm pretty sure. No, no, that, that happens all the time. Why? And we have these contracts so that we can look back on them and say, no, 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 look at what we said. This is what we said, right? Yes, all right, this is what we're going to do. So we have human ones like that. And then we also have, throughout the Bible, divine covenants, where God makes these oath-bound covenants, these uh, relationships with his people. And one of the most famous ones that we see, actually, in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 15, if you want to flip there, you can, but you don't have to. So I'm going to go uh, on a little journey with you into the book of Genesis. I promise we're going somewhere with this. It's not just because I like the book of Genesis. I promise we're going somewhere. So back in Genesis, one of the most famous oath-bound relationships was made between God and Abraham, the man who had become the father of the nation of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham, who, by the way, at this point, he's about 80 years old. His wife is about 70. The way of women has ceased to be with her. Let the audience understand. <laughs> she cannot have kids anymore. And yet God comes to him and says, Abraham, you are going to have babies with this barren woman who cannot have kids anymore. In Genesis 15, so God told Abraham, had no kids, he would give him a son, an heir, a promised son, through whom God would bless the nations. We see that in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3, reminding us actually back in time into Genesis chapter 3. Right, right after the first sin in the Bible, we see that a son would come who would be the snake crusher. So we call him around our house. The snake crusher who would redeem and restore mankind from all the brokenness caused by that first sin. And Genesis 15 picks up on that theme that through Abraham, this promise of God was coming into the world, coming through Abraham's lineage. And Abraham, on hearing this promise of God, he believed it. And by faith, Abraham is counted as righteous, as innocent before God. Get that. Not by works, things he does with his hands, but by faith in the promise of God of a coming son. So Genesis 15, 6, Abraham is counted as righteous by his faith. Not by works, but by faith in the promise of God. So that's the pattern we actually see all the way throughout the Old Testament of how broken, busted up, and sinful people can be declared as righteous, as innocent before God. It's not by works, it's by faith in the promise of God, this coming son. Spoiler alert, in the New Testament, it's Jesus. Uh, so so that, we're declared innocent and righteous the same way as Abraham, by faith in the promise of God in the Son. He was looking forward to it. We look back to it. Both of us declared innocent before God by faith in Jesus, the Son. So 
Back to Genesis. But immediately after we're told that in Genesis 15, that Abraham was declared righteous before God by faith, we are then told how God made a covenant with Abraham and his future generations, that they would be God's chosen people, not because of their great size or their strength or their moral or religious superiority to anyone else, simply because God chose them. That's it. And, and in preparation for this covenant that God was making, Abraham is told to cut some animals in two and lay them on the ground, which sounds disgusting. This is a pretty common way of people making covenants in the ancient Near East. So animals would be cut in two. There'd be a bloody pathway that you would walk through with the other party. And metaphorically, what you're saying is, may this happen to me if I don't keep my end of our bargain. Can you imagine making that kind of covenant with somebody? Like, you better come through, man. Like, you will be split in two and die. That's, that's weighty stuff. Interestingly enough, this same vocabulary is still in our world today. Has you, have you ever heard anyone say, I'm going to cut you a deal? That's what that comes from. I'm cutting you a deal. Interesting. Anyway, Abraham cuts these animals, he makes everything ready, and then something strange happens. Abraham falls into a deep sleep, and a dreadful and a great darkness falls upon him. He's ready, he's ready to make the covenant with God. The animals have been split. He's ready to make this formalized covenant with God. He falls asleep. This great darkness falls upon him. The very presence of God, symbolized by a smoking fire pot, a pot of fiery smokiness, and a flaming torch pass between the animals. Which is interesting because in Genesis 15, Abraham and God did not walk together on this bloody pathway. Rather, God walks alone on this pathway. So the promise that is made to Abraham and his offspring and his people belonging to the Lord, being God's chosen people, is not dependent upon Abraham's faithfulness to keep up his side of the bargain. Rather, it's dependent on God's ability to keep up his side of the bargain. And God always keeps up his side of the bargain. He's God. So God makes an oath by himself that's not dependent on Abraham, but solely on him, meaning that God will bring his plans and purposes to pass. He guarantees it. Now, you might wonder at this point, Aaron, why in the world are you reminding me of this? This has nothing to do with the book of Exodus. Why are you reminding me of Genesis 15? We're in Exodus 24, bro. And it's because these last few chapters of Exodus, what we have seen is we have seen God begin to cut an additional covenant with the people of Israel, one that does not replace doesn't replace or exchange the covenant of grace, faith in Genesis 15 for covenant of works. No, rather, rather it's an additional covenant, one that does not replace the old, it builds upon it. And if we're not careful, we can study these chapters without remembering how they work together to explain the covenant that Israel is agreeing to. And we can kind of miss the picture that is being painted by God in the tapestry of redemptive history. We can, we can, get, we can miss the forest for the trees. You know what I mean? So I want us to pull back and just see the forest for a moment. And so as we've said a couple of times, we need to be reminded in reading these chapters that this additional covenant that God is making with Israel does not nullify his previous covenant. We're not exchanging covenant of grace and faith in, in Genesis 15 for covenant of works. We're not exchanging them. Rather, we are seeing God make an additional covenant with his covenant people, whereby they will experience certain blessings if they're faithful to obey his voice and keep his covenant, and yet experience covenant discipline if they are disobedient and faithless. And so as we've said here a couple of times over the last few weeks, we start by being reminded that Israel is God's chosen people because of God's unilateral covenant with himself, which is expressed through this covenant with Abraham. So, so, so meaning that 
God determined this all in and of himself and then made it known. So God's covenant was unwavering to Israel because it was not based on their performance. Rather, it was based on God's choice and God's grace. That's the Abrahamic covenant, whereby God's sovereign choice was Israel as his people. And then, in addition to this covenant that we see unfolding in the book of Exodus, is a bilateral covenant. Bilateral. First one is unilateral, God only. This one is bilateral. A covenant made between God and Israel, whereby Israel has specific things they have to do if they want to receive covenant blessings of God and not come under his discipline. And we know that because what we see unfold in the book of Exodus is not that God comes to Israel, right, when they're slaves and give them a laundry list of laws and say, if you do this, then I'll liberate you. Come on, be better. If you can be better, I will get you out of here. No, what does he do? He comes and says, you're my son. I'm liberating you. Let's go. Then they come out, and he says, all right, now here's the family rules of how you need to live as my son, as my people. Here's the house rules for you. And that's what we have unfolding right now. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, is Israel needs to learn the family rules for how to live as God's people and the laws that demonstrate to whom they belong. And a way that we have explained this a couple of times, but it bears repeating, is to think about our relationship with our own families. Now, if you have kids, you can think about your relationship with your kids. If you were once a kid, you can think about your relationship with your mom and dad. So I remember growing up, for example, that no matter what, not based on performance, I was the son of Charles and Patty Boswell. They had no choice in the matter. I was just there. I had no choice in the matter. Remember growing up and you wish you had a different mom or dad sometimes? You didn't have a choice. You know, this is just mine. These are my parents. Here we are. Nothing can change it, right? Basically, they got pregnant. I was born about 40 weeks later or so. I was their son. It was irrefutable. I didn't get to choose them. They were my parents. And growing up in that family, there were blessings in our household when we obeyed mom and dad, and there was certain discipline when I disobeyed mom and dad. And a lot of that discipline was not fun, not fun at all, but it helped me understand authority and how I ought to live as a member of the Boswell family. I learned lots of behaviors that I should not do uh, at all. And uh, it was not fun. But, but I, I learned what is expected of me and how ought I to live as a human, right? And so this is kind of what we have seen with Israel. See, they belong to God not because of their faithfulness, not because of their religious fervor or their moral capacity. God chose them. They did not choose God. He chose them. And he entered into a covenant with them by himself. They belonged to him. And as his people, they would enter into his blessings if they obeyed him and discipline if they refused to obey him. So throughout the covenant, Israel is learning the family rules now that they have been liberated from Egypt. They're learning how to become who they are as God's people, living under his kingship for his glory and headed towards this promised land. And that's kind of the Coles notes, what we've been studying the last couple of weeks, all throughout the book of Exodus. And all this started back in chapter 19. Oh, sorry, right there, 19. God begins this covenant by uh, this covenant-making process, letting Israel know that he wants to bless them if they obey his voice and keep his covenant. And do you remember how Israel responded back in chapter 19, verse 8, way before they knew anything that it meant to be God's people and what he was calling them to do? They said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. But in chapter 19, what had God said yet? Not much. They had no idea what they were getting into. 
but it demonstrates their hearts as his people wanting to obey his voice and keep his covenant. They knew that, that he was their God and they were his people, and that's all they need to know. They were standing, having been set free from slavery, having been given food and water and military protection and all of these things. And they said, you seem like a great God. We will do whatever you say that that we need to do. And then throughout the next couple of chapters, this is what God begins to do. So he begins to move forward with the covenant stipulations. So it'd be kind of like if you get a phone call from a potential client and they say, hey, I might want to hire you. I hear you do great work. And you say, great, let me tell you what that means. And then you unfold what that means. And then at the end, they say, I'm going with you. Kind of like that. So he moves forward with covenant stipulations. So in Exodus 19, moving forward, God tells Israel to prepare themselves to meet with him. Israel gathers then on the third day, and they stand as a clean clothed, prepared people. But as they woke up that morning and they looked at the mountain, remember that, the mountain, Mount Sinai? They're there. They remembered that the God who was inviting them into this covenant relationship with him was the only true and living God. That he was the one who created everything that exists simply by speaking it into existence. And they were filled with holy reverence, awe, and fear. And simply it came upon them by looking up at at the mountain that morning as they're sipping their coffee and waking up. It caused this fresh reminder in their hearts of the holiness of God. Because when they woke up and looked at that mountain, it was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. So the mountain is on fire and yet not being consumed. And if you see a mountain that's on fire and not being consumed, you'd be pretty freaked out, right? You ever been to Banff and seen the destruction of a fire, but if there's a fire and nothing's burning up, you're like, I don't know what I'm seeing here. This is, I don't know what's happening. Not only that, but the smoke of this is going up like a furnace, and the whole mountain itself is creaking and bending and trembling beneath the very weight of God, the heavy glory of God on the mountain. And in response to seeing that mountain, the people also begin to tremble, and they begin to be filled with awe and a holy and reverent fear of God. And then from the mountain, they heard God speak to them out of this terrifying scene, and he told all of Israel his Ten Commandments. His 10 words, that would be the foundation of the laws of their lives as a people, the foundation of this relationship. And the scene would have been wild. They have just seen God's judgments and God's mighty signs, but now they were hearing his own voice with their own ears. And as they saw the mountain before them engulfed in flames, yet not burning up, this was a memorable day. And upon hearing God's voice and seeing his glory on the mountain, the whole experience simply terrified them, terrified them. And the people stood far off, and they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Thus the fear of God was placed into them as a people, and they realized once again that they were not dealing with some local deity, some false god, some demon with limited power, but rather they were dealing with the only true and living God who created all things the judge over all, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all was created. So Moses, on behalf of the people, he draws near into the thick darkness of God's glory, and he went up on the mountain as the representative of God's people. And on that mountain, he received various laws that Matt taught us uh, a couple of weeks ago that elucidated, that teased out the Ten Commandments. And then before heading down from the mountain back to the people Nino preached last week, God made a promise that as they obeyed him, God would give them the land that he would, uh, that he had promised them. But not only that, 
God also promised that as they would go and conquer this land, that they wouldn't go and do it alone. They wouldn't have to go it alone and secure it by themselves. No, rather, God had appointed an angel, the angel of the Lord, to go before them, and this angel would be God's presence with them, reminding them of God's presence, and this angel would guard them, and this angel would bring them to the place that God had prepared for them. And so as they will head out into battle in the future, they will do so knowing that God will give them the victory by the angel of the Lord. Thus, in the battles ahead, God would fight with them as they fought and secured the land itself. And so that's kind of the meat and bones of the covenant that we've been studying. Thus, all the way throughout these couple of chapters, all of this is part of this covenant that God is cutting with Israel, which brings us to Exodus chapter 24, where we see, 24, where we see the ratification of the covenant. In this chapter, we're going to see three main things. The covenant confirmed, a celebratory meal, and then after everything is ratified, we're going to see Moses being called back up onto the mountain to receive from God the exact details of how to build the tabernacle, this tent where God's glory would dwell in the midst of his people once again. So that's where the rest of the book will be heading. So let's dive in, and we're going to see how this covenant is confirmed in Exodus chapter 24. And let's do so actually by starting at verse 3. So if you have God's word open with me, if you uh, look with me at verse 3, if not, uh, I have it there for you. So verse 3, so Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Two things. He reminds them of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, and then he reminds them of the rules. Now, if you want to flip over and look really quickly at Exodus chapter 21, 1, As Moses is going up the mountain, God says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And then God proceeds to tell him all the rules. So Moses comes down, and the people are probably like, oh, good, you're back. What's taking you so long? What did God say? And Moses reminds them, he says, well, God told me the Ten Commandments, and the Lord told me the rules that we should follow. First thing he does is call them together, and this is, what, this, this, is what I, this is what I heard, this is what God told me on the mountain. In response to hearing everything that God said to them, verse 3b, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Sound familiar? It should. We just read it in chapter 19. So all the Lord has spoken we will do. So just as they had promised in chapter 19, the beginning of the covenant making, they say again, yes, we will obey your voice. We will keep your covenant. We accept this oath. Yes and amen. We're all in, right? Then verse 4, we read that Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, this is key. The first thing that Moses does is say, great, I'm going to go draw up the contract. Right? That's the first thing that you do whenever you come to an agreement. You're like, great, I'm going to go write it all down. And this is exactly what Moses does. So it's really fitting that the first thing he does is go and write everything down. And it can't be emphasized enough how important this exact moment is. If you've ever been in contact, on contract negotiations, you know how important this moment is. And it can't be emphasized how, much, how important it is. Because Moses goes away, writes down all the words of the Lord. Because right from the beginning, right from, right from the very beginning, even at this very early stage, it is clear that Israel would be guided by a written revelation, a written word. Think about the importance of this writing down, of this covenant, getting it on paper, right? so, so that you're reminded of the terms of the covenant, the stipulations, and the words around it. And why do you do that? You write it down, you agree to it, 
so that it can't be changed later, right? Because if so, you have two copies, you put the copies next to the other, and you're like, I think you whited this out. See, there's clearly white out right there. You changed this, right? How, how many of you running your own business or making sales or buying things have had to look back at a contract and, and hold someone accountable because they wanted to change the terms after the signatures have been on it and after everything's been notarized? That has happened to me a couple of times. It's not, not any fun. This is not a fun thing. Right? And why do, we, why do we go through this whole process of writing down contracts anyway as a society? Isn't it because people like to keep up their end of the bargain? Isn't that exactly why? But a written down contract solidifies it. Not only that, but what Israel has done in this written down contract, this, this book of the covenant that God told them to write down, is that now they have a fixed truth, a standard, a canon of truth to test things by. It is written down for them to remember. Right, so just as Moses had been told by God in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, to write down what had happened as a memorial in a book and to recite it in the ears of Joshua, so now Moses is writing these things down as a memorial in a book, that the covenant between the Lord and his people would be preserved. And this is incredibly important because in the years ahead, Israel would always be known as being a people of the book, guided by God's written revelation. And later on in their history, priests even would have the job of reading and teaching the people the book. That was their only job. And scribes would make copy after copy so that God's word would be preserved throughout the ages that follow. Because Israel believed that God had spoken and had commanded that his words be written down, that we might have objective truth. And throughout the ages, we could test everything by God's objective truth. This is why, as a little rabbit trail, as Christians, we have such value and worth in the Bible, God's holy and written word. And it's why we talk so often as a ministry about how God's word is inerrant and verbally and plenarily inspired and infallible and trustworthy and sufficient and profitable because it is from God himself. It is our standard of truth in the midst of a world that has zero standard of truth other than, I feel like this might be true today. Well, that's a terrible place to have truth. I feel something different tomorrow. And yet now we have things, standard of truth in a world that has no standard of truth. We are, as Christians, a people of the book, just as God's people always have been. And some people might hear that and say, well, aren't you maybe then just locking God into words on a page? Are you putting God in a box? Maybe. And then they'll look at you and they'll sound all spiritual and they'll say, I'll say, not us, man. We live by the Spirit. We just live by the Spirit, man, not the, not the book. And it kind of sounds nice, right? Kind of sounds a little spiritual. And it's utter nonsense. Because what did God the Spirit do? He wrote some stuff down in a book. And he said, if you want to know me, here's my book. So people would say, no, you don't need a book. God said he does. So it, if God says he, if God says so, then then what? I don't, I don't. Understand. What do you mean? I, this doesn't make any sense. The God you are talking about is not my God. This is a, we're talking about different gods here. It's different. It's different. It's absolutely different. God the Spirit moved men right down these words for us to know God to be our standard of truth to test everything by. Not only that, God the Spirit is the one who gives us eyes to see, who takes away spiritual blindness caused by Satan and sin, so that we might see the glory of Jesus through every single page of this book. It testifies to him, and it only does so as God the Spirit gives us the ability to see it. Thus, as a Christian, I seek my eternal future and my present hope that this book is from the Lord. 
He has preserved it so that we might know him. And it isn't a blind faith either. We have more copies of this book from antiquity than any other book from antiquity. Thousands more of them, actually. So historically, as Christians, we have greater confidence in this book than any book from antiquity. So it's really important that Moses wrote things down for God's people. And it's important that God's people would continue to write things down as God's people. I got too excited. Threw that on the ground. So Moses, Moses then, as verse 4, he continues to let us know then what happens. So he goes, so he has all these, he hears all these things from the Lord, comes down, tells all the people, writes it all down. Verse 4 continues to let us know then what happens. So Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings to the Lord. Now, this is a pretty interesting scenario because what we don't see is the Lord expressly command Moses to go out and do this, do we? You see that anywhere in the text? It's not there. It's on a little subscript somewhere. We don't see any indication where God says, go and build an altar and make sacrifices like we do in Genesis chapter 15, for example. So we might wonder, well, is Moses just doing this because that's what people do? They make sacrifices and they build altars and worship of God to ratify covenants, I mean, maybe. I mean, Mo- Moses did write down all that stuff about Abraham, so he knew that's what happened with Abraham and the Lord. So maybe that's an implication of cutting a covenant, but, but I think there's a better answer. And if we flip back to, to uh, Exodus chapter 20, we notice in verses 22 to 26 that the very first thing that God said to Moses, when, when the people said, you go talk to the Lord for us, we don't want to hear the Lord's voice, and Moses goes up on the mountain, you know the first thing that he does when he goes up on the mountain, what God tells him? How to build an altar. Ah, Let's look together. So 22 to 26, Moses draws near to the thick darkness where God was, and this is what he says. Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. So the Lord had told them the Ten Commandments from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. Remember that for the weeks ahead. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Then once you get all fancy with it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So it needs to be on the ground. So Israel has agreed to the covenant, so now it's time, therefore, to build that altar that God told Moses to make, not to use any tools upon the altar and to sacrifice on it burnt offerings, which if it's been a while since you've thought about burnt offerings, the easy thing to remember about burnt offerings is they all get burnt up. They're all gone, just ashes. Peace offerings, on the other hand, where uh, they would uh, begin to roast the animal, and part of it was burned, but the rest of it was enjoyed by the people that they got to fellowship around the sacrifice. So think of like whole hog barbecue. Not for them, they're Jewish. So a cow, maybe, or an an oxen. Uh, I know, Danny's whole hog probably doesn't like that, but that's okay. Uh, So so they they would would do that, and then you have communion, relationship, peace around it, you eating together, and all of these things. So, so it's kind of like how wedding covenants, how you might show up to a wedding. They might have some hors d'oeuvres and stuff. You had a super fancy wedding before you actually have the wedding. You're like, welcome, have some food. You're like hanging out, connecting with people. And they kind of have the ceremony. This is kind of what's happening. This is the picture that we're seeing is this covenant is being formed between God and his people. And then verse 6 to 8, explain what happens. Next, so Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. 
and half the blood he threw against the altar. Now, the altar is symbolizing the very presence of God among his people. So the altar has the blood of the covenant thrown against it. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now, remember, this book is the one that contained the covenant between God and Israel. So Moses came down from the mountain, told it to them, wrote it all down, comes back to them, reads it all out loud as a confirmation. This is what we said, right? And then they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So they say, yes, again. So they ratify the covenant. Israel agrees to the covenant that God is making with them. Thus, as a sign that they are in agreement with the covenant, Moses took the rest of the blood and threw it on the people. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, if you're in the crowd that day, you did not see this coming. You had no idea that you were going to be splattered with blood. Like, you show up at a church and somebody tries to throw blood on you, leave. Like, get out of there. Get out of there. It's one of the most shocking and it's the most formative moments in Israel's history. And I'm going to tell you why. This, see, this covenant ceremony is not, as we have explained, one where they cut sacrifices and walk between them. Maybe where you got a little bit of blood on the bottom of your sandals. Rather, this is the kind of sacrifice, the kind of covenant where half of the blood is thrown upon the altar of presence, signifying the presence of God with his people, and the other half is sprinkled on Israel. So they are covered in the blood of the sacrifice. Thus they went home that day with little dots of blood on them. They are marked as God's people. And the covenant of blood is on their very clothing. And you know how hard blood is to get out of clothing. It's like they had washing machines and great detergent that gets blood out. No. So you might wonder, well, why in the world is blood sprinkled upon these people? That seems so gross. This whole scene reminds us of things we've seen before. Right? Think with me, for example. Exodus chapter 4. Moses has not circumcised his son fulfilling the commandments of God for his people to demonstrate externally that they are God's people by faith in the Abrahamic covenant. And the Lord drew real close. Remember? Remember that sermon? He drew real close in judgment against Moses. And in that moment, Zipporah goes, takes a flint knife, circumcises her son, her son and then touches Moses' foot with the blood of that. And she says, he, you have become a bridegroom of blood to me. Thus, when God drew near in judgment, Moses was pardoned and his judgment passed over him by the blood of this covenant. Not only that, it reminds us of Exodus chapter 7 and the judgment of God against Egypt as the Nile River was turned from a life-giving stream into a river of blood under God's first judgment. He judges them with blood, a symbol of life but also of death. And he used it to kill all the fish of the Nile and to demonstrate that the God that they worshipped of the Nile River was impotent, unable to save Egypt from the judgment of God against their many sins. And it also reminds us of God's last judgment against Egypt. Do you remember Exodus chapter 12, where the blood of the lamb was placed on the doorposts of the homes of God's people so that God's judgment passed over them? Thus they, by faith, believed God's voice and kept God's commands, and they covered their doors with the blood of the animal sacrifice, and that they were, though they were guilty of sinning against God and worshiping idols, false gods, they had the blood of the lamb over their households, and God 
passed over them, and they received grace. And here, once again, blood is brought into the storyline of the book of Exodus. And here, God's covenant is codified. It's set into concrete. Notice as well that the very first function of the blood, does he first throw it upon the people? No. Where does he first throw it? On the altar, signifying the very presence of God with him. Thus, the first function of the blood is Godward. And Moses sprinkled it in on some of the altar as well. See, God here is all in. Do you notice when he, he dumped half the blood on it? Is it after the people said, yes, we're in, or before? It's before. God is all in. Blood will be upon him. Not only that, but one day his blood would be poured out as the true and better sacrifice to atone for their many sins. But more on that in a minute. We saw back in Genesis chapter 2 as well that the consequences of sin was death. Right? Blood symbolized, symbolizing life must be spilt to satisfy the just judgment of God. This is the way that God has ordained judgment to fall onto the world. This is the way that God has ordained this. And so what we have pictured with Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and Israel in Exodus chapter 12 and even Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 is that the blood of another was spilt in their place. One in the place of another, satisfying the just judgment of God against guilty sinners. One pastor, in thinking about this, he wrote, the primary need is that God should be satisfied, for it is his, just, his justly due wrath, his judgment against our sin, that constitutes our greatest danger. And in mercy, he is appointed that by a substitutionary death, one in place of another, encapsulated and symbolized here by the shedding of blood, that those who once were endangered by his just judgment are now accepted into his presence and fellowship. So the blood first is Godward. It's toward God. And then after the people agree to the covenant, the shed blood was sprinkled over them like a huge covering of mercy. They are like the doorposts in Exodus 12, covered in the blood of the sacrifice symbolizing that they have received the mercy of God. And friends, this is not a pretty scene at all. Like, it probably didn't smell very nice. Uh, it's kind of disgusting. It's, it's not a pretty scene, but it is a really powerful one. And Israel would always remember that God's holy wrath against sin demands judgment. It demands death. And yet it's also a gracious reminder that God has made a way for his people not to face the judgment that they deserve. They deserve his judgment, but they don't get it. He has made a way, rather, for his judgment to fall on these sacrificial animals in their place, which look forward to a true and better sacrifice that would one day come as God himself would wrap flesh and bone onto himself and step into time and would have his own judgment poured out against their many sins, against himself. And here in Exodus chapter 24, since the sacrificial animal is slain, their penalty is paid. They are covered by the blood of the substitute. Thus, through the judgment of another, they are saved from the judgment of God, and they're shown grace, undeserved kindness of God. And as we've highlighted a few times already, Israel was committed to obedience. That was their prime concern, right? We will obey. We will do it. But as one pastor explained, God knows that their best intentions will constantly fall short. They'll constantly fall short. 
Thus, they will need to remember this day. The blood that fell upon the Lord and upon them has assured them that God has made a way for them to be forgiven. He has given them mercy, and it would be through the blood of another standing condemned in their place. And they would constantly be commanded by God to rehearse this over and over again throughout their history of a nation. Think about this. Every time they sinned against God, what did they need to do? Offer a sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, as a nation, every year, what would Israel do? Offer a sacrifice. So there would just be this constant reminder that their sin requires the spilling of blood. And God has made a way for them to be declared innocent, not by their blood spilling, but by another spilling in their place. Thus they are declared righteous and innocent before God by faith in God's word that this blood was a substitute for their own blood. Thus if they, it, it, thus it would be their faith in the words of God and by believing upon them they would be declared innocent as God's people and they would continue to rehearse their dependence upon the mercy of God in the centuries yet to come. It, this, this event is really important now in Exodus because the people now in this ratification of the covenant, but, but also as we'll see in the upcoming weeks, we'll see how priests are purified by blood before they uh, begin their tasks of making various sacrifices on behalf of the people. And not only that, but this exact moment will also be referred to later on in Israel's history. In fact, looking back on this event, Zechariah, one of the Old Testament prophets that arise after Israel will get into the land, right? So they'll go into the land, and then they'll have some really not good judges that will rule over them, and then David, Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then what happens? Divided kingdom because of sin and faithlessness to obey God's word. And then what happens to the northern kingdom? How many good kings do they have? Zero. And they end up being... being uh, destroyed by Assyria and taken away. In the south, Judah, how many good kings do they have? Eight-ish. <laughs> it's an ish. Uh, and yet, through their faithlessness, what happens to them? Do they get to stay in the land? No. Babylon comes in, takes them away. Then what happens? The Lord whistles, like I do for my dog. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, an evil king, comes in and destroys both of them and sends God, God's people back to Jerusalem. And when they do, Zechariah is a prophet of the Lord. So he's back in Jerusalem after all of this has happened, and he's writing there. And he, as a prophet, is looking back at Israel's disobedience and looking forward to a coming day where the righteous branch of Isaiah's prophecies, the king that would come in the line of David, who would usher in the eternal kingdom of God. And Zechariah looks back through the annals of history to this exact moment, Exodus chapter 34. And he uses this exact same phrase, the blood of the covenant. And it causes him to do a few things. It causes him to look forward to a future restoration of the land that he's presently in but not seeing. It makes him look forward to a future king that would arise who would then bring a future deliverance of the captives. And then it's this exact moment, this, this description of the blood of the covenant that Jesus, near the end of his earthly ministry, looks back on as he enjoys that last Passover meal, Matthew 26 and Mark 14, with his disciples the very night of his crucifixion. And he picks up on Zechariah's words because he is fulfilling all of the prophetic longings of Zechariah and the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant through his own death in our place as our truer and better sacrifice. He is 
as God with us, as God the eternal son who's laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time, he has come to live the perfect life that we ought to have lived and then take upon himself the judgment that we deserve to pay, the wrath that we have earned. And so as Jesus holds up that glass of wine and he talks about the new covenant that does not come by the blood of bulls, goats, sheep, or oxen, but rather comes through his own blood that will be poured out for their ransom, what he's doing in this moment is he's saying that it's through his sacrifice, by faith in the the blood of his covenant, that the wrath of God will be satisfied against our sins forever. There doesn't need to be future sacrifices anymore. One sacrifice for all time. His blood is enough to cover all of it. And that next day, his blood was poured out. God the Son laid humanity alongside of his divinity, laid down his life and poured out his blood so that we might be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and declared holy before God by his blood, not by our works, but by faith in Jesus' finished work. See, and this is why Jesus came, and it's why it's so important for us and why it's so important to remember what God has done for us, because Jesus came to stand condemned in our place as our substitute, him in our place, one for another, to satisfy the wrath, the judgment of God against our many sins. Because sin is not a problem out there in the systems and structures in the world around us. Rather, sin is deep in here. We have all sinned against God. We deserve God's judgment, but Jesus has come and he's lived a spotless life in our place, never sinning, never rebelling, and then he who knew no sin stood condemned in our place that we might be sprinkled with mercy, declared holy, not because we are, but because Jesus was in our place, and because he suffered in our place, and because his blood was poured out in our place. See, his blood is the blood of the covenant that was poured out to make us righteous, Thus, the wrath of God against our many sins can be forgiven through Jesus alone, the blood of his covenant. Thus, Exodus 24 in God's economy, and Zechariah 9, and what we see in the blood of the covenant as Jesus holds that wine glass up, all of it is fulfilled really beautifully, as Hebrews chapter 9 explains, a letter that was written a few thousand years after the Exodus. The author there, he's looking back at the fulfillment of that chapter in the life and ministry of Jesus, and this is what he says, therefore... Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to the people, to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, the book of the covenant, and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So so this moment in Israel's history is seminal. It's foundational for everything that God is unfolding throughout his word as it longs for the blood of Jesus' covenant to come And so this chapter is so beautiful because it reminds us that we can trust solely on the sacrifice of Jesus' blood to cover us. And that is our only basis of hope if we would have forgiveness before God. That is the only oath-bound covenant, and Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the sacrifice that was cut. He is the one who laid down his life completely as the true and better burnt offering so that we, through his peace offering, might have communion with one another and communion with God, so that we might have his blood sprinkled on us, that we might be declared holy by faith in Jesus alone. 
So, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is incredibly important for you to understand. For what we read in the Bible is right now plainly that we all from birth and by nature stand before God as guilty. We have all broken God's commands. We've all ignored his voice, and the penalty of that is death. Not just death in this life, but eternal death, eternal judgment, where you'll be tormented, as Revelation 20 says, day and night, forever and ever, in a lake of fire suffering under the just judgment of God in eternal punishment, Matthew chapter 25. But God has made a way for you to be forgiven and pardoned. And it's not by trying harder to become a good person. It's not by becoming super religious. Rather, it's by doing what I've done. It's what most of you have done. It's by trusting upon Jesus alone as your Savior, God, and King. By professing with your lips, Jesus, God the Son, lived the life you ought to have lived and then stood condemned in the judgment of God the Father that you deserve to pay. His blood was spilt on your behalf. In your place, condemned he stood. And then he rose bodily from the dead, conquering over Satan's sin and death, that we might be forgiven for our many sins. Thus, today, the offer is available right now for you to have forgiveness before God for your many sins. You are invited by God to come into a covenant relationship with him. And as you do so, you do so by admitting that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's laws and deserve judgment. So you're admitting that which is true of you. And then you're believing that Jesus is your only hope, that he is your perfect sacrifice, whose blood was poured out in your place. So you admit you're a sinner, you believe upon Jesus, and then you turn away from your sin and place your trust in Jesus. And you will, the Bible says, be saved from facing the judgment of God against your many sins. So you profess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart he was raised from the dead, and you will be saved. Friend, today you can be pardoned before God by faith in Jesus. So what is stopping you? The offer is on the table. He's just saying, come. I will forgive you. Restore you. Just just come. You have to clean yourself up, make yourself better. Become someone else, try hard, be extra religious. No. You just come. Admitting that you have nothing good to bring. You just bring sinfulness. And he brings cleansing and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Friend, don't delay in coming and being forgiven. He will make you presentable as he cleans you and as your heart is sprinkled clean by God the Spirit. So come today. Brother and sister, if, if you already have, if you are a Christian, this is the joy that we have entered. I don't know where I am. I'm going to just say, oh, there we go. This is the joy that we have entered. We have been forgiven by God for our many sins. Thus, we stand today as his blood-bought people. We have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. And though we cannot see his blood sprinkled onto our clothing, though we can't see it, we know that our hearts have been sprinkled by faith. We are now his holy people, cleansed and forgiven before him in covenant relationship with him because of the blood of Jesus. And your sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. Not only that, but his blood assures us that we are forgiven by grace alone and through faith alone. So every time we sin, we come before God and we know that we are going to be forgiven because Jesus has already paid our debt. 
He's already been faithful in our place. And so, brother and sister, when you sin, run to Jesus and repent, remembering that you don't have to earn forgiveness. Jesus has already earned it for you, and he's ready and willing to forgive you if Because you are his treasured possession, you are part of his kingdom of priests, you are part of his holy nation. So repent of your sin and do so often. For in your repentance, you're reminding yourself and those around you that you are not a child of God because you have your act together. You are a child of God because you believed upon Jesus and his act is together and it's sufficient in your place. So we need his grace and mercy. Don't don't rob one another of that. See, because of God's great kindness, we who don't deserve it are brought into this perfect relationship with God by grace, and our covenant with God allows us to have communion with him, just like Israel, which brings us to our next section of Scripture. We're not going to spend very long on it, but verse 9 to 11, the meal on the mountain. And isn't it interesting, and it's here where we see that the leaders of Israel, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel are called up on the mountain of God as as the representatives of the people, and they come and they behold God. And they eat and they drink with him after this covenant is ratified. This is like the meal after the wedding. And these guys are the representatives getting to go up the mountain and eat and drink with God. So in the same way today, even after company mergers right, happen, often what happens after a company merger? You have a great big meal with a bunch of people that you don't know and it's kind of awkward. Uh, but if it's a celebratory meal, right, or, you, or you, get a new, you get a new job, and what do you usually do to go celebrate? Let's go out. Where are we going? Right, something big happens, let's go out. Right, in the same way, here, they're like, where are we going? Up the mountain. All right, let's go. Uh, I mean, God is the one that invited them. Uh, don't get me wrong. But, but these guys, these 74, they go up. And this is the essence of those peace offerings. Israel gets to enjoy, they have peace with God, and now these men get to eat on the mountain. So they go up. And we, it's interesting, we read in verse 10 that they saw the God of Israel. Now, once again, we know this is a theophany of some sort where the invisible God makes himself visible. And yet we know that they don't see the unbridled grandeur and glory of God because we know from Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, that man cannot see God and live. You would just die. And so we don't know how they beheld God in some veiled way. They're, they're beholding God in the same way that even Moses, uh, later on we'll see he beholds something of God, but, but not the clear and unbridled presence of God. And so we might wonder, what was it like for these men to see even a veiled representation of God? What did this whole experience look like? And we aren't told a lot of details. And maybe it's because there are some things that are too glorious that human language simply cannot capture them. We don't have categories for the greatness of God. I mean, read the book of Revelation. You're like, what are these animals, man? It's like, I don't know. It's the best I could do. Um, in fact, all these men are just unable to tell us anything about what God looks like. What do they talk about? The ground. They talk about the ground. I don't know. I don't know what God looked like. I just remember the ground under his feet. Pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. I don't know if it's because that's as far up as they looked. They're like... No, I just know what the ground's like, man. I don't, I'm not looking. I don't know. We don't, we don't know exactly, but, but we, know, we know that they saw the pavement of sapphire stone, like heavens for clearness. We do know as representatives of the nation of Israel, they were invited by God to eat and drink, where once they had no access to do so, now they, as God's blood-sprinkled people, are invited to eat with him. And we don't know what they ate or drank, but I imagine it was good. I don't know what it was, but I... I I, I doubt like Gordon Ramsay had better food. You know what I mean? Like, this is probably pretty good. And as I was reading and studying this week, one of the books I read, last thing we'll really mention on this, this text, is about how interesting it is that Nadab and Abihu are mentioned as being part of the 74 men who climbed the mountain. 
They beheld God. They ate and drank with him. If we remember our scriptures, it's these men who less than a year later in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 to 2, are the ones who offer strange fire in worship to God, worshiping God in ways that he is not prescribed. And as a result, fire comes out from before the Lord and consumes them and they die. As one pastor noted, he said, let the warning sink deep into our hearts. That office and special privileges are powerless to save you. And let this warning be true for you and I. See, just because we might have had religious experiences or been part of a good gospel preaching ministry and enjoyed the sweet fellowship of God's people doesn't guarantee that we will not face the judgment of God. Matthew chapter 7 makes that explicitly clear. There will be people who have prophesied in Jesus' name, cast out demons in Jesus' name, and done many mighty works in Jesus' name, and Jesus does not know them. They are not his people because they are not covered in his blood. Friends, we can experience God's presence among his people, and we can have amazing spiritual experiences, and yet still spend an eternity suffering under the judgment of God because we do not come to him by faith in the finished work of Jesus alone. So don't neglect salvation while it may be found. Again, we, we have one hope of being welcomed at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it's that we are in the right clothing covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus alone. And so are you covered in his righteousness or are you pretending? And if you are in Christ, there is a glorious communion with God to be enjoyed. I mean, think about this scene. In Israel's history, there has been almost 15 years, 1,500 years after this chapter until Jesus comes. But never again did anyone see God or eat or drink with him like this. Right, Sin came into the picture, fellowship with God is broken, and the next time that we see Israel drinking anything comes after they worship the golden calf. It's ground down into dust. Moses sprinkles it on top of the water and says, drink, which is so gross. We, however, as Christians, may constantly commune with God. We can enjoy the table, the physical bread and juice, which we physically take together as a church, rejoicing in the new covenant that has been made by the blood of Jesus, the covenant meal in celebration. And we can long for the coming marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll be gathered around the table enjoying the bread and the wine with saints from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, all of the blood-bought people of God throughout the ages, which, again, I don't know exactly what we're going to be eating, but I know that the wine isn't going to be wine named after an animal, and it's not going to come out of a box. It's going to be the good stuff. Which brings us to our final few verses, which lets us know that Moses is called by God to go up onto the mountain once again to receive from God the tablets of stone. As we will see in the weeks ahead, he will also receive the instructions for building the tabernacle so the glory of God may be in the midst of his people, not simply on display through the devouring fire on top of the mountain, but rather dwelling with his blood-sprinkled covenant people in his tabernacle. But that will be for another day. So bring this, clap, this chapter to a close. I want us to call us to a time of reflection on what we have heard today and ask us to consider where are we at in our relationship with God? Like, have you been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus by faith? Or on the day of judgment, will your blood be on your own head for refusing to come to Jesus that you may be pardoned and forgiven? It's one or the other. That day, your blood will be on your own head or you'll be covered in the blood of Jesus. One way leads to sweet communion with God blessings and joys everlasting at his table with his beneficent presence. 
but the other leads to eternal judgment, spending eternity, future, suffering under the righteous wrath of God. So are you covered in the blood of the covenant, or will you refuse to come and be sprinkled clean by Jesus? So I would petition you to come and believe upon Jesus today. Don't harden your heart against God. And if you are a Christian, then in a moment when we sing, may his great kindness to you just be such a delight for you. Think upon what he has done that you, who do not deserve it, might be called a son or a daughter of God. Not by your works, but by his. That he was cut, that you might have everlasting life. Let's pray.